This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, I'm Paul Canetti. I'm the CEO and founder of Maz. And what I love about content, I love a lot of things about content, but what I think most interesting maybe about content is how people remember specific things. You know, I read a gazillion articles, but I will reference some specific article I read like five years ago or a song that you heard 20 years ago or a TV show you saw. Like, it takes a lot to break through, but when you do, people actually remember that one little piece of content. This podcast episode, maybe? Potentially forever. And that's that's a very exciting prospect to me. Content may be king, but connecting content with the right people, that can get complicated. That's where businesses like Maz come in to empower content creators to do what they do best and to succeed. Coming up, you'll hear from the founder of Maz on how this mission is accomplished by bringing businesses of all shapes and sizes to every major media platform from mobile and TV streaming apps to Apple News and gaming consoles. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business. Conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Paul, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here in studio. Yeah, happy to be here. All right. And uh, I'm Mark Rako. I'm sitting in as a, as a guest host on the show today. And with me is one of your regular peeps. It's Natasha Charlton-Brown. Hey, Hello. Natasha. I'm so excited you're here, Paul. Me too. It's been a long time coming. I know. <laughs> we so, were just talking about bucket lists. Yes. Being on a podcast with you, <laughs> there you go. It's something I can cross off the bucket Nine list, more to go. So. Nine more yeah. things to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like be on a be on a podcast with Natasha. See the northern lights. I'm hoping that was number ten. Yeah. It was the only thing on there. So. Okay, there you go. Whatever done, happens done. from here on out. All right, you know, I'm so, okay with it. So sorry for you, Paul. <laughs> We're so happy you're here. I'd love to jump in with this question. Content is literally everywhere. Yeah, we live, breathe, look, walk travel it is everywhere you're in the hospital there's content you know you're walking down the street there's content you're listening to a podcast there's content it's just everywhere and we are everywhere so why is it that getting it from the bajillion places that it is to the bajillion people looking for it why do you think that is actually so complicated. Yeah. It's funny. Last year, our marketing tagline was content everywhere. So there you go. I'd like to point out, I did not know that. That is true. You did not know that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's in one way, it's never been easier to get content everywhere. Um, we're living in an age where, for instance, anybody can publish a podcast. Anybody could publish an article. Anybody uh, could put a song on iTunes. Isn't it amazing? You can put, you can shoot something on your phone, throw it on YouTube five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you are an internationally distributed filmmaker. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You could live stream it. You don't even have to wait the five minutes. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> there you go. Um, so distribution has largely been democratized. The problem is that everybody got the memo. 
So, <laughs> so the, the, the ratio maybe of publishers to, you know, distribution difficulty has actually stayed relatively intact. It's a lot easier to distribute, yeah. but there's also just like a I, I realize the error the error of my question yes. really it's it's not getting to the people is complicated. It's getting their attention that's complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so publishing is no longer the issue. That used to be a big issue. Like I have something to say. How on earth am I gonna get this somewhere? Because the funnel got real narrow as you actually looked at the different ways to reach a broad audience. Um, today, it's wide open. Anybody can can do it, but you, the competition is, is you know, billions of times fiercer. Um, and so breaking through is tricky. And the other thing is that there's more ways to distribute. So it's not just that, um, you know, if you think about sort of traditional media, print, TV, radio, and physical media like billboards or something but now there's all of these different channels you know each little i had a nine-year-old teach me tiktok last week and i was like i'm doomed my career's over like <laughs> like the, the, you you should take over nine-year-old uh because it's almost impossible to keep up even for someone who my job is to be keeping up um and so and i don't think you should gloss over the idea that this was a nine-year-old all kidding aside the fact that we have delivery mechanisms that a nine-year-old can not only learn but teach. Oh, we were creating content too. I was doing yeah. a dance video. Yeah, so yeah, he's yeah. thinking about you know, content. He's thinking about content. content creators. They're producers. They're editors. Yeah. They're yeah. Yeah, it's a whole world. And she was like, "Oh yeah, Instagrams. That's something my parents use." I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, well, I know the other day I heard someone say Facebook, that's for old people. And I was well, that's like, for grandparents. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, wait, what? Hang on. I didn't know that. Yeah. Damn. But yeah. I guess you take all the, the plethora of distribution points, but then you take into account all of the data you get back from the feedback and that feedback is not linear. No. no the, yeah. the data points are and should be interpreted in different ways. But what's positive, what's negative and what's indicative of what you should produce next well that's the thing if you try to actually be everywhere and put all your effort equally into everywhere um it's kind of a losing strategy because it's impossible to be good at everything and also probably your audience isn't actually everywhere or whoever you're intending to reach and they can sort of see through it it's kind of like Mm -hmm. different people hang out in different corners of the internet whether it's by age or otherwise. And so it's almost like disingenuine if you are big on, let's say, Instagram, and then you're really trying to like break into Twitter and trying to be like snarky so you fit in on Twitter. And it's like, well, that's not really you, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, there's like people just have like a, a weird – it is almost like hanging out in like a, a local bar or something that just, you know, millions and millions of other people hang out at. But you can sort of tell when someone's like new in town – when they when they break into a new social network, it's like when brands use hashtags, and it's just kind of like, ugh, it's just, you know, it's like it's like a parent coming hashtag in. loving it, yeah, or, or anything. It's just like it, it reminds me of like a parent coming into like the basement oh. of the slumber party and using some like slang, you know, and and the kids like anyone Dad. up for Sean, like you know. everyone up for some Sean Cassidy, yeah, yeah. It's like you know this, so so it's actually it's it's nuanced. You can't just say. We're going to hire someone to start posting here. You actually have to get to know the terrain yeah. to be effective in any given. And fi- 
find out what your tone is clearly. Yeah. It doesn't obviously it doesn't translate. You can't just yeah, exactly. lift someone else's tone and Yes. This is a particularly yes. interesting point to me given the given the transformation of uh, brands with internal content studios. Yeah. When those content studios are not led by people from the outside who know the terrain, but led instead from internal people who think they're suddenly going to create content, but they don't know that terrain. (laughs) And they're trying to lead the brand down where a place the brand isn't been so technically they're innovating and they're doing better but where they're going is not where they need to go because they don't understand the terrain Mm -hmm. and fascinating so what should brands do do they come to the likes of you or they well it's funny i mean yes i hope all roads lead lead (laughs) to maz but you have to know what you're doing in you have to have content and you have to know where you want to distribute it to use a tool that helps you distribute content everywhere and so we actually meet people a lot of the time they're actually a little too early in the process for a tool like ours how do you know that how do you know this well first of all we should probably should unpack oh, yeah. what like, no 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 right. well, let's unpack what your what your company is yeah and, and then maybe a good follow-up to circle back is is then how how do you know someone's too early for you and i'm sort of interested in the way that you may work with them to help them go the rest of the way yeah Absolutely. So, so Maz has been around now nine years. I previously had worked at Apple and sort of a designer by trade, whatever that means anymore, but started my career in the magazine world, actually, in print. And so somewhere between like media and tech is, is my, my sweet spot. But when we founded the company, just to sort of give a quick flashback to 2010, the iPhone was still pretty new. The concept of apps was completely new. Um, Android existed, but really hadn't sort of taken off yet. BlackBerry was still like the most modern, you know, smartphone of the day. Social media was not available on your phone yet. No one was watching video on their phone. I mean, it was just a very different sort of thing. And so we basically decided that smartphones and apps and related sorts of technology were going to be important. That was the bet that we made. And we thought it's crazy if every single brand, every single media company, every single publisher is going to build these things from scratch um, each and every time when they're really all trying to do the same thing, which is just present the user, the consumer with some content, some articles, some videos, some whatever. Uh, And the technology doesn't know the difference if you're a surfing video company or you're a finance news video company, those companies like to believe that they are uniquely different and super special and need special types of technology just for surfing or just for finance news. But the tech, doesn't, it just knows the video file. Like it doesn't care. Um, and so that was sort of the the key to it. And it's, it was really built on the idea of all the web CMSs that we'd seen, like WordPress or something. It used to be everybody developed a website from scratch. And then there came these platforms. You said, oh, actually, every website's sort of the same. We could build on a common framework. And so that's really what Maz is, is like a common framework to build your digital distribution on top of those tools. And today we work with all sorts of publishers, you know, big companies like your alma mater, Bloomberg, um, but also, you know, the surfing example is a real one. We work with outside television. They have like, um, it's like a niche uh, cable network and they have like the coolest adventure sports kind of content. And then it goes even smaller. We have a, a new publisher called Naki TV. It's like cooking videos for people who keep kosher, you know? And so the niche goes real niche mm-hmm. and the big goes real big, but 
they're all using the exact same technology to do it. And that's really sort of the magic to me is building tools that can sort of scale like all the way up, all the way down, because the tech doesn't really know like if you're being produced in a Bloomberg studio or, you know, in a in a home studio. It's the same thing in the end, technology wise. Um, so it's funny you asked up front, like, what do I love about content? The the controversial answer for someone that deals with content creators all the time is the tech doesn't really care what the content is. And I might say that even consumers largely don't really care what it is. They just want the spot to be filled. It's like quite literally the contents of the container. I'm opening up Instagram and my affinity is to Instagram. It's to the container. And then when I open the box, what's the contents of the box? That's the contents right? The content is in there. And as long as it's halfway decent, I'll keep going back there to find it. Um, And so that's a scary proposition if your whole business is on how amazing your content is. Uh, But yeah, I I think we're sort of reaching an age where most content is completely disposable. I would say look at the number of Instagram feeds that are literally someone just taking picture after picture of themselves. I think we have to agree that in most cases, unless they're doing some really interesting things with those pictures, that's not exactly riveting, meaningful content. But something about the person who goes there, it's it's filling some need of just passing time or, or some, something has connected you with that. But the content itself is not really meaningful content. So it's it's interesting. Sometimes it may be what has led you to the content that is more exciting than the content that you come to in the first place. Yeah, and I wonder what that magic sweet spot of what percentage of content needs to be good to make you go back mm-hmm. psychologically. But yeah, also yeah. the on the emotional side, you know, as a content consumer, you need a certain reaction. But it's also a creative outlet. So yes. how... How does that balance work? Yeah. And, and you know, using whatever the selfie example, I mean, it, it really is this idea of democratization that the only people that you could watch on, let's say, television were television stars or that you could watch in movies were movie stars. or You could see photos published of or celebrities in magazines um, and so the only people you were exposed to uh, that the public was exposed to were people that were already famous that were doing this professionally. But now you could be exposed to anybody. And so it makes everybody some level of celebrity in that way. Um, so that's one piece. But the other thing is that the democratization of making it look good. Like, for instance, mm, we're sitting mm-hmm. here in this beautiful podcast studio. But to put together a studio like this 20 years ago. You know, one of my college internships was at Sony Music Studios and they had to shut it down because all of the musicians today are just setting up, you know, their laptop in their basement. They don't need those studios. I wasn't doing anything cool, by the way. I was like literally cleaning ashtrays, (laughs) although I did spray mint flavored spray on Beyonce's microphone once. Well, that's very close to her. It's super close, but it was in her rider that no one was allowed to see her. So I had to hide in a closet when she came. I'm, this, is, this is a real story. Uh, but I know what her microphone smells like. <laughs> because I That's good because most used microphones smell terrible. Yeah. Oh, she's smart. Yeah. It's, it's really a really like good requirement. You don't need to be Beyonce for that. Yeah. You know? That's right. Uh, um, by the way, speaking of the studio, I want to point out that in actuality, as lovely as our studio is – 
it doesn't take a lot to put a studio like this. That's together. what I'm it's saying. Not yeah. like, it's not like the radio studios of your or big television studios of your. It doesn't take much. If you look at most of the content, let's say you see on YouTube, for example, where someone's doing these, quote, news shows or whatever, that is them in their living room with a green screen behind them and their cell phone or their whatever. And that is it. Absolutely. My That's their whole studio. Or they're just recording 4K. their laptop screen. And- yes. Yes. Yes, 100%. And so that really changes the math. I mean, when cameras first were invented, right, like it was the sort of thing that a rich family would go once a year to have their photo taken. It was so expensive and so rare. And then when they started getting a little cheaper and portable, if you look at like the New York Times headlines of the day, it was a privacy outrage that there were, you know, creeps in Central Park taking photos and capturing your soul yeah, exactly <laughs> and now you know i i, I just passed a hundred thousand photos that i've taken on my phone you know um and film's cheap in in 2019 mm-hmm. uh and and so the whole mentality of who can create it who can reach the public all of that like turns the whole thing on its head and that's why a lot of the the publishers we work with who are who are not sort of amateurs but are actual like media companies that they're in the business of content they really like to imagine that they have something quite different than the riffraff out on the street filming them themselves but in the eyes of the the consumer they're all competing for the same the same attention for the same space in the day all right. Uh, clearly, we need to unpack this a little further and talk about the intersection of everything we just talked about with actual use cases with brands and and circle back to, um, you know, uh, those that brands that are not ready, how you get them to that point. But first, as we approach the end of our first segment of this episode, that is very meaningful to all of us because I see on that table right next to you, Paul, is a bag. Mm. With a French-looking name, mm. that can only mean one thing, and that is snack. So many of our guests bring a little something for all of us to share. It's a great way to break bread and often sometimes learn a little something about our guest. I'm just curious as can be about what you brought and why. So the name is French, but this is faux French. Ah, faux, which is <laughs> something I did there. Is a French uh, I love that. Uh, this is from Koreatown. Oh. And in Koreatown, you will find many French-like pastries. Is that right? That are sort of Koreanified. And so as far as breaking bread, there's literal bread in here. I have no idea what these are. These are mystery... Mystery pastries that sort of... each contain some sort of mystery cream or <laughs> something. Uh, and so what, you, you, you say mystery as a positive term. Positive, yes? yep. Mysteries are usually positive. They get a bad a bad reputation. But all right, these look fairly straightforward. These they are like do. cookies or... and it says premium, premium cookie. However, well, as long as it says it, this oh, says premium much? cookie. Natasha, I want you to just feel the raw weight. Could I do a bicep curl with that? Those are heavy. So, yeah, so that's, that's incredibly just, dense. I'd like to point out for the listeners, this is a plastic, uh, a plastic container with four some spheres like, uh, spheres <laughs> of, of some sort of of confection looking as if it's um what is that what is that stuff they put on cakes that yeah, like powdered frosting. sugar or, oh right yeah yeah whatever it's something. like there's a green like one icing. a pink one and two white ones yeah like icing and um but they're really heavy they here. do you Mark, could play pool with them i think 
my gosh, it, they literally feel like there are four pool like billiard balls in yeah. there. Yeah, and they you eat they, one of those. And you're not having dinner. Um, they, they, these they, are more mystery like breads with mystery <laughs> with mystery things inside. Well, you brought how many people did you think were going to be in here? I thought it was just me. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> uh, sorry you have to share. So, Look yeah, feel this. free to indulge. All right. Um, my, my guess is that they are all sweet and made of ingredients that will be very, very hard to place. Uh, <laughs> but to, to the listener, they all, besides the weird billiard balls, um, the rest just sort of look like dinner rolls. Um, but in fact, they are stuffed with some sort of Korean I, delicacy, I have to tell you, I took a, uh, I took a little, uh, a little whiff of the, uh, the billiard balls, as we were calling them. <laughs> it is not even close to the smell that I was expecting. Oh, really? I'm be interested to see. What, what were you what, expecting? Something that tasted confection like. And what, what's the reality on the ground here? It's hold a little on, more on. of an earthy smell. I thought. <laughs> Let's see what you think. Oh yeah. They're, they're they're not what I would expect at Earthy all. Earthy is yes. It is. Uh... <laughs> and I didn't say what year. What year of Earth? <laughs> oh wow, yeah. It's it, got a. I can't tell whether they're spoiled or that's by design. Yeah, I don't know if this is what they're going for. I know, but it's got a real you know, sort is, of. This is sort like of a don't judge aged... a book by its cover kind of thing. <laughs> it's like it's aged a... cheese, yeah, kind mm-hmm. of vibe like it's... a mold, like little like notes of mold. Notes of mold. <laughs> like, um... All right. Well, we're um, if, if I mean if at this point back... we have to eat I, it. Though, I, I was right? going to say this. Well, I know. Well, if we it's come mochi. back, you'll know that we it's survived. Mochi. It. It's mochi. It's mochi. Oh, look at that. It's all like, just yeah, like, it's, it's have like you ever had that baked mochi? Mm. So, all right. Well, anyway. we're gonna eat. Hopefully, survive. And all kidding aside, thank you very much, Paul. A really wonderful Absolutely. selection. They're pretty uh, good. Yeah, good. All right. Well, it's like moldy cheese or, or like smelly cheese. It smells terrible, but it tastes yeah. fantastic. Great. Coming up, uh, you're gonna hear uh, Paul reflect on use cases for brands and what it takes to lead a brand the rest of the way if they're, if they're not quite ready for that full engagement right after this. Hi, I'm John Matson. I'm one of the hosts of Travel Is Your Business. And if you're interested in what's going on behind the scenes within the travel industry, you have to check out this show. We cover everything from the aviation industry to hospitality, hotels and accommodations, even in-destination and touristic experiences. If you work within the travel industry, this is an important resource for you. You'll hear from not only executives and leaders within the industry, but also new innovations and technologies that are coming to market right now. And if you're not in the travel industry, you're going to gain insights that help you connect with a traveler and their experience to advance your career. So come along for the ride. You can listen and subscribe to Travel Is Your Business wherever the best podcasts are found. Those were just the craziest and most delicious treats. I saw that both of you tried the the mo- mochi machi. Yeah, mochi. Yeah, mochi. Mm-hmm. yeah. They and were really. I don't know like. what that smell is, <laughs> um, but Why? it does, it tastes delicious. But you know, isn't it weird? Like, I'm sure culturally that smell is a wonderful, familiar, desired smell because that's what you grow up with. It's what it's part of your culture and. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and it's just not something we're used to. Because for me, I looked at it, I expected one thing and got another. Yeah. But if, but if I knew I was expecting it, I might have felt differently about mm-hmm. it. It actually is true. Like all of these have sort of like a hidden identity. Um, Isn't that true? You they know, really do. Whereas like um, what's the equivalent maybe in a, a jelly donut? But you know it's a jelly donut because they they're you can sort of see the hole where the jelly went in. You like, know what? It's a sloppy if, job. If every these donut like you'd ever had, <laughs> how do they get the stuff? If you had only had custard donuts your whole life, and then all of a sudden someone gave you a jelly donut and you didn't explain it, mind blowing. It would be weird. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but who doesn't like jelly? So thank you very much. All yeah, right, Paul. Let's pleasure. talk about brands. What's the problem that you're solving for? I understand the little guy mm-hmm. who doesn't have a mechanism to distribute their content. But when you have a big brand, um, whether it be an enterprise brand or even even a midsize brand, sure. what is the problem that you're solving for them that they can't get anywhere else? And I don't even mean it like, tell us why Maz is a good yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. As much as just what is the issue that exists that you are an answer to? That's question one. And then when we get through that, I'd like to talk – you had mentioned earlier sometimes brands are not – not there yet. So why are they not there yet? And what are, what distance do they have to cross before they really can make use of something like you? The basic concept is that some of the time, there really is no technical barrier to reaching a particular platform or channel. Like let's take um, Instagram, like we were talking about before. There's really nothing you need to know except how to actually produce the content and you have to understand Instagram, but like you don't need a middle person or an agency, even though people do actually hire agencies to do this, just to press the post button. Like you can, you could do it. Anybody could do it. That's the whole point. Anybody could do it. Um, when you look at something that is, uh, you know, a mainstay of of the Maz platform, but like an iOS app or an Android app, right? It's just another content delivery mechanism, but to make one to to be able to publish there you have to hire a team of developers and designers and it's it's the opposite of pressing you know post on instagram and so that's quite prohibitive for people um and there really are only so many ways to do it it's like you know every once in a while i get a note from a random person i went to college with or someone i haven't talked to in years it's like hey i heard you're doing apps like i have this idea for an app do you think I could do it? And I'm always like, no, you can't do it. You don't know anything <laughs> about anything. It's like if someone just came up to you and was like, you know, uh, I know I've been working in finance for the last 10 years, but I think I'm going to be a concert cellist. And I'm like, that's awesome. I didn't know you played cello. Like, oh, no, no, no I don't play cello. And you're like, what are you talking about? There's a mismatch. And um, now that doesn't mean that someone can't learn the cello and pursue that. But it's a really big undertaking. And there's a bit of a misconception that because every once in a while you have sort of a smash hit where a kid in a basement creates an app and it goes viral and, you know, Facebook or Google buys it for a billion dollars. It's sort of like, oh, well, then obviously it can't be that hard. Anybody could do it. Um, Same goes for building a website or or any sort of digital property. Uh, But it's actually really, really hard and again, any company or single person even that really puts their their mind to it and spends the time and the money and the energy and, and educates themselves could do it. But you really have to make sure it's worth it to go through the trouble. Um, and 
for me, for instance, as a designer who cannot code, this has always been like just a frustration. I'm like, I have a really cool idea right now to do something really cool, but I need to find a developer or team of developers to make it real. Like I'm looking at it. I've designed it. This is exactly what it looks like. This is exactly what it's going to do. It's all in my mind. I'm ready to go. And I'm lucky that I found amazing like technical partners throughout my career. But what if you just didn't need that? What if you could just go straight from the idea to the finished product? So that's really what we're trying to provide. And so for big companies, you know, like Business Insider is one of our newest customers, and they're relaunching their iOS and Android apps uh, using Maz. And mm-hmm. I'm so excited. This is a brand that I engage with pretty much every day of my life, um, you know, for well before they were for a customer of ours. And the truth is, though, that like if Maz didn't exist, they would just find some other way to do it. In fact, until now, they've had an app and it wasn't with Maz. So I'm very, very pleased that they're with us, but they would find a way because they have the means. But when you take a small brand like Yoga International, it's like a Netflix style subscription service for yoga videos, and they use Maz to get on OTT devices, smart TV devices like Roku and Apple TV and Amazon Fire TV, Chromecast. If Maz didn't exist, it is possible they just wouldn't be able to be there. They wouldn't be able to do that at all. And so in that case, it's like Maz or bust and everywhere sort of along that spectrum. And so I think about this idea, whether it's for a big brand or a small brand, it's just if all of a sudden the the cost, I don't just mean monetarily, but the cost by every measure of cost is less, you start to get a lot more innovative and a lot more experimental and a lot more sort of open to the idea of trying something and changing something and and experimenting because the risk goes down dramatically. And so we find that with the biggest brands that we work with. Um, and, you know, because even for a big brand, you pay for the technology, you hire an agency or maybe an in-house team, but then you're sort of stuck with that. Exactly. So the power of Maz is that you're iterating for tomorrow's media landscape and they don't have to. Exactly. And as you can go into the Maz dashboard anytime and change anything, you're not really committing to any given interface at all, you could change every single thing about the appearance of your, let's say, iPhone app every day of the week if you wanted. And you wouldn't be paying somebody by the hour to do that. You could just sit there and tweak it to your heart's content. Um, And so again, as a designer, as a creative person, as sort of a a product-minded person, just personally, that is really appealing to me because it is sort of a creative work in itself and you're never really done. You know, Kanye just came out with a new album last week, by the way. I don't know if you guys have listened. Uh, And it was supposed to be released on Friday, like at midnight, like Thursday night. And Friday at 7 a.m., he was tweeting, I'm still putting the final touches on this mix. Um, And he's just tweaking and tweaking and tweaking all the way until the very end. But something like an album, once it ships... It shifts and people think about software the same way. It's like, okay, well, this is my website now and maybe two or three years from now we'll be able to change it again. And a tool like Maz or again, a tool like WordPress for the web, that whole mentality goes away. Mm -hmm. You can go in there and tweak whatever you want whenever you want. Mm -hmm. It's super liberating. it's never finished. No. And it should never be finished. No, it's a living, breathing thing. When someone says, how much does it cost to make an app? The real answer is infinity. Assuming you want it to be live on the internet, Mm -hmm. ongoing, you will be paying for this forever. And so it's not a fixed cost. It's not a fixed effort. It's something that 
that is ongoing. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and so anyway, that's why I like software in general is because it's like a living, breathing thing. We're tweaking our platform. People are tweaking their software that they made with our platform. Like it, it goes all the way down. So how does designer become software fanatic? Well, I was always a bit of a, of a computer geek, I guess would be the geekiest way to put it. But I was a student of very early Apple in that my father, who is a graphic designer and an industrial designer in the early 90s, bought sort of the the early Macintosh computers. We had a Mac 2SI in our basement and all of the sort of leading edge design software of the day. But he's old school, um, or at least at, at that time was old school. So, I mean, I learned sort of the, the essentials of design from him, Letra Press, and, you know, he had a big sort of drawing table and like like old school, like rulers, you know, and compasses kind of design. But he wanted to sort of level up into digital. And so I was just a naturally curious kid. So I learned all the design software. And arguably, he was a much better teacher than I was because he actually did teach me design. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how successful I was at teaching him all of that software (laughs) at the time. But I learned it and just became completely enamored with software and with computers. And, you know, I built my first website 20 years ago. And I was really one of the only kids in my high school that was learning early web programming. And one of the co-founders of Maz, my friend Simon, was my friend in high school. And we actually became friends because we were the only two kids in our high school that seemed to care at all about that stuff. Um, Turned out he was much better at the coding part than I was. And so design and technology were always sort of of intermingled for me. I, I don't really remember a time. But that being said, I started my career in print design, but of course using software to do it. And so it just was sort of inseparable to me. It seems to me that for a lot of brand executives, especially those that may be um, of an an older generation versus a younger generation, and and therefore they didn't necessarily grow up with this technology as just a part of their world, they they learned into it over time. There may not be a lot of separation in their mind, even though they may intellectually understand it, between design and and delivery. Mm -hmm. It's just all one big thing. I just like, I don't know how they get it there but we make it and then it, it, it you know i don't understand why you can't just do yes, it yes so so my question is is how do you um i guess i could speak the royal empirical you versus <laughs> and but also you paul how, how do you overcome or address that lack of natural understanding that there is a bridge to cross here that is a complex bridge to build it's crossable it's buildable and and you have the tools to do that but you you can't just make it and then it goes out to the world there's a translation thing there's a language thing there's a technological fence to climb there's many many things involved um and then and then once it's out there you can't just build it and they will come. You have to – there's so many aspects. So my question is, is how, how do you connect? Because a lot of the older brands are not run by 22-year-olds. Yeah. I mean the greatest lie the devil ever told was was calling the whole genre web design uh, instead of web engineering or something more technical. And so you know, I can remember for at least the first 10, 15 years of the web – it was, oh, I need a web designer to make me a website. 
That's like, well, they can design the website, but then what? Not going to build it. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and, and so now I do think that there's a, a bit more of the separation of roles. But I agree with you that people are, are maybe sort of, you know, of, a, of an older generation. And I don't even mean age wise, but of a business Thinking, generation yeah, where. Yeah. But, but I think there's good reason for that. I actually think there's a lagging indicator when you look at the business metrics. So if you are a successful brand, recently I did a, a, a seminar with L'Oreal or another one with Verizon. I mean, these are huge brands that have seen tons of success um, and traditionally without a big digital uh, marketing presence, let's say, you know. And so um, it would be a while until senior executives would sort of start to believe the narrative that this is really affecting our business, not participating here, because the business is so big. And by definition, these emerging technologies, even if they're trending up or making such a small percentage of of the impact, it's the same thing on the publishing side. So, you know, whatever, you have a magazine or a newspaper business and you go back a, even a decade, but certainly two decades ago, three decades ago, I mean, digital was was still, you know, on the tips of some people's tongues there. But it was such a tiny little, you know, nothing that it's like, well, compared to the real business, that's not really worth much. Um, meanwhile, what you have in, in every industry across the board are these new sort of digital first brands that end up becoming real threats to those big incumbents. Um, and so, uh, you know, whatever, in beauty, you think of like Glossier, a direct to consumer, you know, digital first brand. Um, and in media, there's a million examples of digital first brands. Um, and so ironically, they have less resources and less capital and less everything. But the only thing they know is that digital is important and actually, in their case, constitutes the whole business. You don't see any chief digital officers at a digital company. You only see a chief digital officer at a company that says, we should probably be doing digital. Make a department for that. Um, but just that whole mentality of, of it being sort of a department, in my opinion, is is sort of, you know, is is shooting it like down from the beginning um, and its success of really becoming successful because um, it's just sort of siloed to to digital world. But I understand it. Yeah. If I'm the CEO of one of those companies or the CFO or the board and I'm looking at this quarter's earnings and our forecast, even looking out the next year or two, and hardly any of it's coming from digital, even in the best scenarios. I'm like, why do we care about this exactly? You know? And then by the time it is significant, you're in this crazy mode of catch up. <laughs> and then you spend a lot of money you shouldn't be spending to try to catch up. Most of those projects fail. Um, then you get real squeamish because you just spent all this money on everyone said digital is important. Well, we spent a million bucks and look, it was total, total bust. So now I'm not doing, I'm not spending anything. And then you dig yourself into a deeper hole and it's a couple of years later and you're, you're nodding in agreement. Um, but it, it's sort of a vicious cycle and there's not a magical fix. It, it would, I would, I would love to be like, you know, to sort of wag my finger and say, well, they should know better. But I, I think it's actually quite hard when you're running these organizations, um, especially the publicly traded companies that that really are beholden to this quarter's earnings, even privately held companies. I mean, they're beholden to someone. And the unless you're in an industry where R&D and spending well ahead of revenue is part of your culture, 
it's a real shock to the system to spend time and energy and money on something that's not going to make any money in the near term. And these things hardly ever do. Yeah. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier about it's a it's a process of testing as well. Absolutely. So even if you do decide that's where you're going to put your dollars and you're going to bet on the future, there's no... Sh- you know, there's no certainty that yes. you're going to get it right in the first six so, months. So, uh, just, so this is so funny. So I, just on the way over, I read this headline about Peacock, the upcoming NBC streaming TV service. I don't know why they just don't call it like NBC, but Peacock, fine. And they're considering making it free and purely ad supported as opposed to a subscription service, which which I think is, is interesting. But, you know, if you take the, the model of a TV network, it sort of resembles like a VC with tech companies, right? It's a portfolio play. So you launch a bunch of TV shows, you pilot a bunch of shows, you experiment and see. You're making investments at the at the show level, but you're hoping to make a return at the portfolio level, knowing some of them are going to fail, some of them will be mediocre successes, and every once in a while, you'll have Seinfeld, and that'll pay for everything else, right? It's hard to get a Seinfeld-level show on network television anymore, but whatever. But when they... Those same exact companies do technology. They just go underground for like four years and build the piece of technology that's going to transform our business. And they pour so much money into it on the production, on the marketing. And then the stakes are really high when it launches. But I think they'd be better suited to follow the same model, Mm -hmm. um, which is to be just as experimental and, and sort of almost like a portfolio play at the technology level as they are with the content itself um and they just like everything else you really shouldn't pour money into something unless you have a pretty good indication that the dollar you put in is going to produce greater than a dollar like the unit economics have to work and you can only do that through experimentation um but uh yeah i don't know i I don't know to me that's a cultural thing more than a not understanding technology thing you know All right, up next, uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about Paul as a human being uh, as we get into some brief personal questions. I have a disclosure. Do you? No, I am a human. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Oh, no, this could go. This is go wrong. (laughs) Hi, my name's Rebecca Fitz. I'm from Warby Parker. Hi, I'm Chris Hansen from Ignition One. We are hosts of Retail is Your Business. Retail is Your Business is a weekly podcast covering the intersection of innovation, technology, and business strategy in the world of retail, online and offline, across all industries, with a focus on consumer experience. We deep dive with insiders from industry leaders to cutting-edge startup founders. Crucial insights, career journeys, trends, new ideas, and the state and trajectory of the retail industry become accessible with a fun and comfortable morning radio vibe. Listen to Retail is Your Business every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because retail is your business. in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. So Paul, we established you're a human. Yeah. So let's get, let's get <laughs> personal. 
I'll lead it off. I'd love to know, since you consider yourself a little bit of a geek, I'd love to know what app you have on your phone that would probably surprise most of us. Like, we would never guess that you have this on your phone. Your guilty pleasure app. Guilty pleasure app. Uh, Guilty pleasure app. Well, this will sound like a cop-out answer. But maybe the most surprising thing is about my phone is not an app, but that it's that I have all notifications off. Okay. All of them. I don't do notifications. I don't do those little red circles. I can't handle any of that. Um, and so my Paul phone... is the one who knocks. <laughs> <laughs> and and so um, did you see El Camino, by the way? Yes. I didn't see it yet. Brilliant. Uh, but it's a good example of like hot for a minute and then like suddenly no one was talking about it anymore. You know, this, the content passes so are, fast. Are you a Breaking Bad fan? I am. I promise you this. When you watch El Camino, there are it – is, it is a wonderful balance of a lot of um, fan favorite stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Without jumping the shark, uh-huh. okay, you know, without good. it being ridiculous. Good, but good. Um, um, but anyway, anyway, yeah. So it's funny. I I obviously am someone that makes apps for a living, makes software that helps other people make apps for a living. But I actually try to use my phone as least as possible, and um, particularly with young children. Mm-hmm. You know, there a couple of years ago, I just found myself like my daughter sort of pulling on my leg, and I'm just mindlessly going through some social feed sort of come to mm-hmm. I'm like what am I doing Good for you like, yeah. you know and so um so my, my phone is actually fairly sparse yeah by the way that story make sure your daughter knows that someday I it will be meaningful to her I, hope so. I think about my father I don't get us off track but my father when he was doing his uh, doctoral uh, in education and my my brother and I were very young one time he was in the study so he'd work all day and then he'd work on his his doctorate and he he opened the door to the study that he was in. He had the door closed. He opened it up and he saw my brother, who probably was eight years, seven years old or something like that, um, who was sleeping at the bottom of the door to the study <laughs> so he could be close to dad. Oh, man. And my father made a decision to to pause his studies because he realized it was affecting his time with his children. And he went back later and fixed it. And I always remembered that. And and if I ever have an opportunity to talk about my father for some reason, um, that that is one of the stories that I'll point to because it says a lot about his character. Well, and, and I'm glad I, should, I know know that story. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I should be so lucky that my daughters would would tell a story like that. Yeah, you, know, you, well, you have to let them know about it for them to know about yeah. it. So anyway, so uh, so no no guilty pleasure apps then. No guilty pleasure apps. Okay. Silence. That sounds like a guilty it's pleasure. Okay. I know. We we, yeah. we we well, he's eliminating the guilt. Is what he's doing there. So no, but I mean, I'm, I'm a struggling you. addict. But it's... I mean, I am on the road to <laughs> no 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 to, to I, sobriety I'm, here. I'm delighted yeah. with your answer. The, the idea is to get to know you, not to have a specific outcome of the question. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Let's say in a year's time, you sell Maz, you exit in whatever desirable strategy you want to exit in. What would be next? Hmm. Let's see. Okay. So I wake up one morning and I just have nowhere to go and presumably some money in the bank. Mm-hmm. 
Although you don't know because you don't have any notifications on your phone. Exactly. Right? You don't have a banking app. <laughs> right. I, I bump into someone on the street. They're like, I mean to tell you. We heard. I got a notification on my phone that you got access. Congratulations. You. Uh, I, exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think about uh, I think about doing all sorts of things. Certainly, I, I really do believe in the idea of there's more to life than work. But I have sort of a different spin on it. The whole idea of work-life balance like never really made sense to me. Like I'm alive when I'm working. I don't know. No, I, else. Like, <laughs> I, you know. I understand why people aim for it, but I think it does assume that work is the enemy of life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they put they, yeah. they put themselves in opposition, and I think for some people they are. And I'm just I'm lucky that that um, I'm knocking on wood, and that that's just not the case for me. Like to me, I'm actually spending most of my life working. I mean, just by by hours wise. So um, it's a big part of my life, not in opposition to it. Um, and so if that went away, uh, certainly there are other parts of my life that have been ignored because being the founder and CEO of a company is is demanding. Um, but I think I would most likely want to start another company um, and uh, not necessarily in this space. But I do think a lot about sort of the broader issues that are affecting humanity that like all of a sudden are starting to be in the realm of tech. And so I think a lot about like, what are the things that I really know about that I could somehow apply to areas that are outside their normal application, if you will. And so more and more things that used to be sort of non-tech are moving into tech. And I know I'm being sort of vague in saying that. No, but, but I get it. I get it. It's but, like, it's like, I think the first thing that came to mind for me, even though that may not be what you're referring yeah. to is like, I think about like clothing where the fabric is sensitivity to chemical reactions. And so for diabetics, your, your sleeve turns a certain color. If it senses your blood, uh, sugar level is getting to a certain level. And it's just like, that's fashion, right? That's apparel, but it's really tech. Yes. Yes. And it's, you or, know, or, or, you know, like think about, um, something like cancer research, right? So yeah. I really have very little to contribute to cancer research, but, um, you know, I read the study recently that these machine learning algorithms are, um, are basically diagnosing breast cancer by, uh, analyzing mammograms with much, much earlier than human radiologists. But the tech, Technologists that are building those algorithms, um, they're they didn't go to med school. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have any domain mm-hmm. expertise in medicine. Oh, um, sure. They're computer scientists that now are somehow affecting, you know, cancer diagnoses for real human beings that that could be treated earlier. And so, um, you know, the I, I think the influence of technology and software. And the internet is going to keep sort of expanding out into areas of the world that it just couldn't previously touch. Um, and so if I ever get the opportunity, um, and I'm certainly in no rush, but but to start another company, I would really think about sort of how can I take some of the the experience that I've gained along the way and really try to find like where is the edge of that sphere of influence and where could I sort of yeah. play there? Yeah. All right, Paul. Any uh, any any last words? <laughs> do, oh, do you have any thought that you'd like to share for those who are have joined us on this show uh, that maybe reflects back on this conversation or any any wisdom you'd like to leave behind? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, mochi, 
Or more than meets the eye. <laughs> so don't be afraid. Or no cheat. Yeah, no, I, I think our, our conversation was, you know, covered a lot of interesting areas. But but I think there are a couple of things that, that might tie it up nicely. The, the, the main one just being that, like, this whole concept of should I be investing in digital? Should I not? Should I be investing in mobile or not? Should I be investing in social or whatever the next mm-hmm. platforms are? Um, it really doesn't have to be a binary answer. It could be, you know, to use your word of experimentation. It's like, should probably be like trying everything. You know, this is like college. Um, we should be trying everything. And, uh, and the idea is that some of them will stick and some of them won't, but you shouldn't be making massive bets on all of them. In fact, you, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how do you sort of creep your way up? You know, like I teach, um, I teach a couple of courses at Columbia business school. And one of the things that I talk about is this idea of, of the MVP, the minimally viable product, which lots of people think they understand. Um, but as soon as I start asking my students, you know, what would an MVP for, and then I name like a famous piece of software and they all answer with just a simpler piece of software. And it's like, no, you know, an MVP for Tinder would be me going to people and saying, hey, can you text me a picture of yourself? And then I'm going to text you a few pictures and you tell me if you like any of those people. And then you text me if, if you like any of them. And if anybody happens to like anybody, I'm going to open up a group chat and let you talk. That's an MVP. Um, it doesn't really take any technical ability or at least a very small amount to test the the hypothesis to gauge the demand to see if the concept works. And then it gives you a little confidence and you're like, oh, OK, like, well, now how can we up the ante? And by the time you actually build the Tinder app, like you're pretty sure it's actually going to work before you make that that yeah. investment. Um, and so so, yeah, that would be my parting advice that you should probably be experimenting everywhere with everything but in the lightest weight way possible and how can people connect with you and with maz if so, they should so desire yes maz it's just m-a-z you can google us or it's maz why, why is it called maz it doesn't stand for anything is what we say but the hidden history <laughs> of maz is that um the original name of the company was actually mag App zine. It looks better written down, trust me. Look magazine, um, but with an app. You got it. Magazine with app in the middle. And the idea was the first uh, customers, you know, market that we were trying to target were magazines and newspapers that wanted to publish on, on iOS in the early days. So you were speaking the language. And so we were we were magazine. But then fairly early on, we started going into non-magazine companies and they were like, we're not a magazine. And I was like, well, just forget the name. I was like, okay, if I'm starting every bit, every meeting with forget my name, probably we should. uh, It's a new brand uh, brand strategy. So internally, we'd always just called it Maz, and so you know, very very early on, um, we we switched the name. But that that's the origin. But you can find us online. You can Google it. Um, The website's MazSystems.com, and you can find me. uh, the The main place I hang out online is Twitter. And it's just at Paul Canetti, C-A-N-E-T-T-I, rhymes with spaghetti. Outstanding. And, um, well, Mr. Yeah. Uh, Paul Canetti, spaghetti, um, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure having you here. Thanks for yeah. the, the journey through um, content and brands and connecting content 
with the people that are supposed to be paying attention to content. So really great. Congratulations on Maz and best of luck moving forward. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thanks. Absolutely. And thank you very much for all the treats you brought. There is there is just a buffet of them over there. So yes, let's let's uh, let's see what, what we haven't tried here yet. That's right. All right. Well, uh, that's it uh, for this uh, great episode of Content is Your Business. We we so appreciate you listening. Thank you very much. And we hope that you'll come back next time. Until then, uh, for Natasha Charlton-Brown. Fantastic to be here, Paul. Amazing to have you here. Um, Talk to you next week. All right. I'm Mark Rako. Uh, Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. This has been Content Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.